just outstanding song selection all week long. That's our, yeah, all week long. It's been my opinion anyway, and I appreciate it so much and well done. And boy, oh boy, it's blessed my heart. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, that choir number, I, had, I haven't heard that in a while. Uh, we're, I'm hardly ever at Southwest, and I know they've, I, I remember when Brother Kevin wrote that song. And uh, boy, that's powerful. That is wonderful. Just really, really thank you all for the good music, and thank you, Pastor, for the uh, opportunity to be here and for the hospitality and the kindness that you've shown to my wife and to me. I, I really appreciate it. I really am thankful when she's with me. Things just go better. Uh, when she's with me. And I know there are people that look at me sometimes like, eh, I don't know about this guy. But if they can meet her too, they'll think, well, she's got really good sense. I don't know. She, he can't be that bad. So anyway, I appreciate the, that she could be here. And we just really, really have felt welcome. And, and uh, I, I'm just, I'm thankful that I got to be a part of this week. And I told a pastor about 2000 and. Uh, 25, that if they'll let me out of the nursing home, I'll be glad to come and preach. We'll just see how that goes. All right, let's go in our Bibles tonight to the book of Genesis, and uh, of course, and we are going to be tonight in chapter 35. Now, this being the last service and not being able to totally finalize or complete the journey of Jacob and that whole story, we have to stop tonight. I think this is an appropriate stopping place. But I'm going to talk to you a while, and then we'll not stand and read the text and then go back through it. We'll just read as we come to it and make our way through uh, the portion out of chapter 35 that I want to talk about. Now, when uh, you come to the end of Jacob's life, which from where we are here, would be something like 40 to 45 years away. He is approximately 100, probably a little over 100 years of age here. And uh, he dies at the age of 147. And so when, uh, before he dies rather, he, you know that he goes to Egypt because Joseph got there, sold into slavery. The sons went there because of the famine and to get food wound up that Joseph uh, had authority and favor from Pharaoh, and the whole family went uh, there. He met uh, Pharaoh himself, and the interesting thing there that here is Pharaoh, the most powerful uh, sovereign in terms of government, the most powerful man in the world, and when Jacob met him, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It wasn't the other way around, because uh, the servant of God and the man of God, that's more significant than five Pharaohs, or you choose the number. And so, anyway, that's interesting, which shows that Jacob has come along in the spiritual journey. And as he blesses his sons and their families and such as that, you can tell that, uh, that Jacob has come to a place of spiritual uh, insight and understanding and sensitivity and such as that. So what I'm trying to say is that through the course of time, uh, Jacob develops into that spiritual man, uh, at least to some degree. And we don't have enough of a record to know a lot of details about that. 
but it does appear that he developed into that spiritual man that God meant for him to be. But it was quite a journey. It was quite a journey. A long journey for Jacob, who insisted on continuing to be Jacob, even after God dealing with him. So, um, now stay with me here just a second. Um, you know the word Kansas. Kansas is our neighbor to the north. Texas to the south, Kansas to the north. So, uh, Kansas, are, they're the neighbors I like. But, uh, okay, some of you got that, some of you doesn't, it doesn't matter. So anyway, uh, up in Kansas. So I was uh, checking to uh, see one time about Kansas, and I found out that the word Kansas comes from an Indian word, an old Indian word, and the word means the people of the south wind. The people of the south wind. And if you went to Kansas, uh, I could take you to places. This isn't true just everywhere you look. It's not that obvious. It wouldn't be to the casual observer. Uh, but you'll notice that the trees bend to the north. And that's why it is called the people of the south wind, because the winds come sweeping up and down the plains. And in the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein uh, rendition of Oklahoma and in the famous song, you have Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping up and down the plains. Well, when it comes down from the north, we blame Canada and North Dakota and South Dakota and Nebraska and Kansas for the wind that's messing with Oklahoma. And of course, from the south, we know where all the hot air comes from. <laughs> that would be Texas for those of you that aren't up on your geography. A lot of hot air down there. Uh, so anyway, uh, so the wind comes up and down. Well, why do the trees bend to the north if the wind comes up and down the plains, which it most definitely does, it blows a lot. And the reason is, obviously, is because at the time the south wind is blowing, the sap is risen, the trees are green and growing, and that's when they are able to be affected by the wind, and so they lean towards the north. And so you can go along in some places more clearly identified than others and just wander along fence rows or along a place where there are, is a row of trees or around the house. And you might just ask yourself the question, well, look, at they're all bending that kind of tree. It's just bending so far to the north. Well, that's what it is. The reason I mention that is because as the wind works upon the trees in Kansas and elsewhere, as the wind works upon them to shape them, God has been working on Jacob to shape him. And if I could get you to get a picture in your mind about Jacob in his youth, that would be up to about 75. <laughs> and so when Jacob was younger, you, you, we don't have a whole lot of the record, but enough I think you can tell that Jacob would have been postured something like this, head high, chest out, and strutting because he was smart. He was sharp. He knew how to manipulate. He knew how to get what he wanted. Don't think he wasn't proud of this. He was. And so if you can picture Jacob when he gets the birthright, yeah, well, that worked out pretty good. You got to know what you're doing. You got to know how to play the game. You got to know when to take advantage of somebody that's weak, like Esau was, most definitely. And uh, I now have the birthright. 
And then he got the blessing from the father. He had some issues with his mother about that, but he went ahead with it. And when it's done, he got the blessing that, uh, that uh, Isaac meant to give to Esau instead of went to Jacob. And uh, it, you, you, there had to be the attitude, I win again. I'm hard to beat. Yes, sir. So if you can picture him in his youth as he manipulated his way through, I don't mean to wear it out, but if we have the record of these in a period of 75 uh, years and more, I'm quite sure there were other incidents where uh, Jacob took advantage, both of Esau or whoever was in his way of having what he was wanting. And so he would have been like this, chest out, head high, and strutting along like this. But his circumstances changed somewhat because God had a purpose for his life and God resisteth the proud and he was arrogant and he was proud. So God begins to work on him. And we know what happens, that this matter backfires and the next thing you know, that Jacob is leaving the only place he had ever known in 75 years uh, where he had been around Beersheba there with his mother and with his father and with his brother Esau. And now all of a sudden, uh, they are sending him away that he might take about a 500 mile journey to a place he has heard of and people he has heard of, but not people that he knew. And now he's gonna take off on this journey and as near as we can tell, he is alone because when he has this experience at the place called Luz that becomes Bethel, then it appears indeed that he is alone there when God appears to him and God speaks to him. And so if you can imagine by the time he was on that journey, kind of follow along here, by the time he was on that journey uh, from Beersheba and he landed that night in Luz, I don't think his head was quite as high and his chest was quite as extended. I do believe there might've been a little shift in posture there because this is something different. You may have won and got the blessing but you didn't allow for this, uh, this journey away from home, this journey up to be with relatives that he didn't even know, uh, 500 miles away. And I'm sure it changed his posture some. And then on top of that, God met with him that night in the dream, as you know, and there was the ladder. I mean, somebody said, well, this was just a dream. This was God, for sure. Okay, it, sure, it was a dream, but this is God in that dream. This isn't because of what he ate that night and some of these weird things happened. No, this is definitely God at work and nobody knew that more than Jacob and that's why he named the place what it was and said, I'm at the very gate of heaven and God is here. And he knew that. And I'm sure that by the time he had had that experience and the Lord had showed him that he is trying to take all these matters into his own hand when all he has to do is really rely upon God who has all power accessible to him and, and has angels that are um, designed for this purpose to be ministering spirits to those that are the heirs of salvation. And so God is showing him, you're taking too many matters in your own hand. If you would give me these issues, then your life could be different. And I'm sure by the time that was over and he got ready to move on, I imagine there was another shift in posture just a little bit, not strutting quite so much. The head maybe even down a little bit. Oh, this humbling, I was at the very gate of heaven. That's what he said. That's how he felt. That's what he had experienced that night. God made him experience that. 
And so then he gets there and he meets Rachel. And boy, this is a delightful time of his life when he met beautiful Rachel. And so he humbled himself to work for Laban for seven years to have Rachel. And so he labored and worked for seven years to marry Rachel. So he married Rachel after he got Leah. And I'm sure the Leah experience. Now wait, 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 wait just I can see him saying he's mine. Oh, hold on just a second. I'm the one that pulls the shenanigans. I'm the one that pulls the tricks. I'm the one that manipulates circumstances and people so I can get what I want. And now look, this Laban guy, this uncle of mine, this brother to my, uh, to, to my mother, and this father to the girl that I love, he, 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 who does he think he is? Who does he think he's messing with here? <laughs> well, Jacob, it's not just Laban. God's at work in your life. There's still some bowing that has to take place, bowing. There's still some bending that has to take place. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. And of course he wasn't there after this, but I'm sure it probably contributed to the situation that he had been, uh, he, he had been deceived himself and he wound up with a wife that was less than delightful to him that he didn't ask for, but he loved Rachel that much that he kept, had to keep Leah and then married Rachel. But to have experienced the departure from home and all that is now taking place where a man has two wives um, and, there, and has two wives and one of them he didn't even want, that has to be a little humbling. He's going to have to live with this thing now. Probably maybe a little less of this. What do you think? If, if you'll agree with me, we can move on. If not, I have to work on it harder. And, and so we could be here as long as you want. It's Friday night. Who cares? So go ahead. So, but can you see kind of what I'm talking about? He might even find a slump in his shoulder. He might even find his head hanging just a little bit dealing with this situation. And then he got manipulated by his wives. Well, you, you, you give me children or I die. Okay, then. Okay, then take my wife, Billa. Okay. Well, if you can do that for Rachel, you can do it for me because Leah quit bearing. You can take my handmaid, Zilpah. Okay. Now, who's being manipulated here? The manipulator is being manipulated. And for somebody that lives with such arrogancy and pride as Jacob had to have possessed to be, have behaved the way he behaved. This is a rather humbling experience because he keeps getting it from left and right. And it's not just that his father-in-law Laban pulled a fast one on him. Now his wives are telling him what to do and he doesn't have the manhood to take a stand for what's right. And he does what they say. The next thing you know, it had to be humbling that here he is, the grandson of Abraham, and he's got a household of confusion and chaos and turmoil because there's tension between Leah and Rachel, to be sure. And then there's got to be tension between the handmaids and then the sons of the handmaids and the sons of Leah. And, the, and then finally Joseph born uh, of Rachel. There's this intense jealousy that's going. And if you look at uh, Jacob's family and you think, here is the grandson of Abraham. Let's look at his family. Your expectations might have been way up here. But when you know this account, you know, oh man, this is sad. 
Not much room for head high, chest out, strutting down the street now. You've created a mess. You've got 11 sons that don't, don't like each other. You've got the son from your beloved Rachel and they despise and resent him. And you've got wives that uh, are at each other's throat and despise each other and have great resentment. You've got a father-in-law, watch this, the father-in-law kept manipulating because when it comes to a part of their dividing up and Jacob moves on, uh, Jacob says to him, you've changed my wages 10 times. So he has manipulated and pulled shenanigans to get financial advantage from Jacob, just like Jacob is working like a dog to make sure that he can manipulate the situation to get financial advantage from Laban. What a beautiful scene we have going here. Just on and on it goes. I'm sure that as things move on, uh, he finally has to leave Laban. They can't work it out. They have one final clash where Laban goes back and Jacob moves on. And he's got to face Esau. Esau coming out against him with 400 men. Now God intervened and Jacob didn't kill him. But, hey, but Esau didn't kill Jacob, but Jacob was scared. He was greatly afraid. You can just kind of picture his mind when he's praying. I don't think he was like this. I got it. I can handle this. <laughs> I think he was getting place. He probably realized I can't handle near as much as I used to. Or something's going on in my life that I'm not as successful in my efforts as I used to be. Well, you and I know what's going on. God has a purpose for this man's life. And let's not forget one thing here. That back in chapter 28, after that he had had this latter experience and God had spoken to him concerning those angels that are ascending and descending. Let's not forget at the end of this when he was greatly afraid because he said, I've been at the very gate of heaven and knew that he'd been in the presence of God. Jacob made vows to God. And he said, I'm going to honor you and I'm going to serve you. And basically said, and when I get this project done uh, going up here to Haran, I'm going to come back to Bethel. And he named that place Bethel, the house of God, and made a promise that he's going to come back to the land of his fathers and that he's going to do the right thing. But by the time he leaves Haran, 20 years have passed. You know, maybe he would have acted a little sooner, huh? Because he seemed to really, I mean, that, that, it, that situation there uh, at Luz that became Bethel, it really got his attention. Why else would a man promise to tithe if God hadn't got his attention? And promise, I'm going to come back here to Bethel and the land of my fathers. I'm going to come back. But 20 years have passed and he's still being Jacob. There's, I, I don't know if he ever tithed to God. I don't know how he would have. But there's no record that he did. He certainly didn't make any efforts. He made an agreement. Okay, I'll work another seven years. And after that other seven years, okay, I'll work another seven years. Now, they didn't finish out that next seven years, but they made six years of it. And after 20 years, now he's gone. He's heading back. What do you, what do you think his posture is now? I'm quite sure there's no chest out, head high. Look what I've done. He's scared out of his mind about Esau. He's been humbled. And then God speaks to him. Look in our account in chapter number 35. And in fact, if you'd go back to chapter 
Let's do this. Go back to chapter 28 and verse number, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 31 and verse number 3. Chapter 31, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. And then God spoke to him in that dream and said, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar, and reminds him of that situation where he had uh, made the pillar and made the altar there and promised to come back to the land of his fathers. So now having been 20 years removed, chapter 35 and verse 1, and God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Now, if I can have your attention here, what I'm trying to get across is this, that in the process of God working in these uncomfortable and difficult circumstances, and God was at work, in, in the process of doing that, Jacob would have been like the, like the trees affected by the south wind. From this, okay, from this to this, to this, to this, and he's bowing. He's bending. He's coming low. How do you know? Because God's ready to work with him. God's moving. He's telling him the next step. I was just reading in the Psalms this morning, and it was in my Bible reading, and I wrote this down. Where in the world I write it down? But here's, here's basically what it said. That God raises those that, let me see. It's really good. Let me get it here. Let me get it. Shame on me. The Lord raises up them that are bowed down. Amen. That's in Psalm 146, verse 8. And I, I'm just doing my Bible reading. I'm, of course, thinking about uh, the message tonight and about more of Jacob. And, it, and, the, and the psalm just says it very plainly, which is the truth throughout the Word of God. And he says, the Lord raiseth up them that are bowed down. I'm submitting to you that all of these circumstances where God has been at work in Jacob's life, that it's got Jacob to where he is bowing down and bowing down and bowing down. And now God is going to show him the steps by which he will raise him up and use him for the purposes that would fulfill God's will instead of Jacob's will. And God has been at work. Uh, continually and over and over. And now he says to him, now I want you to get with your family. And he said to Jacob, I want you to rise up and go to Bethel. Now let's stop right there for just a minute. Where is he when God is telling him this? Because God had told him to go back to Bethel. Jacob already promised God he was going to go back to Bethel. Then he got instruction when it was time to leave Laban, watch this, to go back to Bethel. But when we read our verses, do you know where he is? Shechem. He said, thank you very much. I don't know where Shechem is. Well, it's not far from Bethel, but it ain't Bethel. And what did God have for him to do? And what did Jacob say he would do? I'm going to go back to Bethel. He made a vow to God to do that. And then God speaks to him and says, I want you to go back to Bethel. 
And on the way back to Bethel, remember the story of Dinah and going out to meet the daughters of the land and the prince of the Shechemites there and the father, the head of the tribe, Hamor was there. You remember that situation and how that he got paused there because Simeon and Levi went in when the men agreed to circumcision and killed the men. And Jacob said, oh man, what have you done? This is a humiliating time too. What have you done? The people of the nations about us here are gonna hate me because of what we've done here. You're making things more difficult and oh yeah. And, and so he, do you know where he, excuse me, do you know where he is 10 years later? The same place. He's in Shechem. Come on. He stayed there 20 years. I'm coming back to Bethel. But he didn't even try till 20 years later. He was still thinking about Jacob and profit and gain and, and increase himself working for Laban. 20 years. And now he comes back at the command of God and God tells him to go to Bethel, but he stops in Shechem. How long is he in Shechem? 10 years. 10 years he's there. Shouldn't have been there that long. Again, um, this isn't what I necessarily want to preach about, but isn't it amazing the patience of God? Isn't it amazing the long suffering of God? I think, we ought, Pastor, I, I, I think we ought to preach. You know how we feel about this. Preach the Bible straight. Bring it home. I'm just talking about. Uh, we, we got enough people out here saying, "Well, God loves everything and everybody." Well, that's okay. God's okay with that, and God's okay with that, and God's okay with that. I'm just telling you, there's a whole bunch in that Bible God's not okay with. There's just a lot He's not okay with. And there's, there's a lot of nonsense and carnality and worldly spiritual, uh, lack of spirituality in God's people that he's not okay with. But I'm one of those people myself that am very thankful that God is patient and long-suffering and kind and gentle. And though we're reading an Old Testament account here, you're just seeing an example again of the patience and long-suffering of God. Son, I want you to go back to Bethel, and 20 years later, he's done nothing about it. And then finally, when circumstances are such that he can't stay there, God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. And then he goes to Shechem and stops there. I'm just saying, he's in the general region but he's not at Bethel. He's in the general area and across Jordan and in the land of Canaan, but he is not at Bethel where he built that altar and built that pillar and anointed it and said, this is where God met with me and this is where I'm coming back to meet with God. 10 years have passed and he hadn't even budged from Shechem to Bethel, which I'm guessing would be less than 20 miles away. Oh, well, that's close enough for who? For whom? Close enough for whom? He didn't say, I'll almost go back to Bethel. That isn't what he said. And God didn't tell him, get as close to Bethel as you feel like getting. That's not what God said. Go to Bethel. So now God's working on Jacob. Excuse me. He's got low enough, God's going to work with him, but he's got some more work to do. And now God speaks to him and says, tell this to your family. Now, he's got everybody together, and I want you to look what he says. This is interesting stuff. Start in verse number two. Then Jacob said unto his household. Okay, so God said, you go back to Bethel and dwell there and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. He's talking about the latter experience. You get back there. 
And Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, okay, I'm going to do what God says. I am going to that place. Come on, read between the lines. I am going to that place that I called the gate of heaven. I'm going to that place where I met with God. Now we're going to go there and you're going with me, but we got some work to do before we go. Look in verse two, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. <laughs> How about this? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Put away the strange gods that are among you. Okay, remember the account? We didn't preach about it. Remember the account, though, when Laban caught up with Jacob as he tried to take his family away? And he said, I'm also mad at you because somebody took my gods. Somebody took my idols. Somebody took my images. Images, idols. That's all they were. Don't try to read something into that that's not there. He was an idolater. And he said, uh, he, he said and somebody took them. And Jacob said, nobody took him, and he's mad at Laban. Laban's mad at him. Then search everybody. Came to Rachel's tent. Remember that Rachel feigned uh, to be at a certain situation where she couldn't get up off of the, off of the uh, Campbell's box of tools and stuff that was there. And so she just sat there, and that's where she had the images hid. Uh, Rachel. This is a granddaughter of Abraham. Idols. Uh, this is Jacob's wife. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, idols, images, idolatry. He said, we need to get rid of the images. We need to get rid of the idols. We got to get rid of the stuff that doesn't belong here. Somebody says, well, you know, well, there was a lot of paganism. Oh, exactly. There was a lot of paganism. But Jacob said, you're going to be my God. No, okay. Don't make me go back and read it all again. Go back to chapter 28. And when he met with him there at Bethel, then, and Jacob answered God, then he said, you're going to be my God. Now, what does that mean? I'm not going to have any other gods. Then let's look through your family's, uh, uh, let's look through your family's possessions here and what are there. I'll tell you what you'd have found there. The things he said now, we got to get rid of that stuff. It doesn't have any place here. If we're going to go back and get serious about meeting with God, then we got to put away the stuff that doesn't belong here, the strange gods that do not belong here. Now, why don't we just stop and preach a little bit? Because I wonder how many people in 21st century America that claim to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior are really serious about meeting with God. And if we're really serious about meeting with God, then I want to ask you a question. What would be different from then to now? In other words, were there things in their possession that didn't belong there, that would be a detriment, that could actually have their affection, that they could be misguided and give their devotion to those things? Yes. Well, is it possible in 21st century America that there are people that feign to want to meet with God, but they know there are certain things in their life and in their possession and in the possession of their heart that is contrary to God, that they are wanting to meet with God, but not willing to put away the strange stuff that doesn't belong in the life or the heart or in the possession of a child of God. I can just tell you right now where we're living. 
I could go and your pastor could go to, and any preacher could go to almost any church anywhere and say, God's a holy God. Amen, amen. And we ought to preach that God's a holy God. I love preaching out of the Psalms. I love Isaiah 57. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. And he said, I am he that inhabiteth eternity. My name is holy. I dwell not only in the heavens and above you, not only that, but also dwell with the humble and the broken, the contrite in spirit. You know, I'd love to talk about the greatness of God. And his train filled the temple and there were those created beings around him that were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You can go in and preach, God's a holy God. I'm telling you, God's a holy God. And even some backslidden churches, you could get somebody to say amen. That's fine. But it didn't just say he's a holy God. He inspired his servant Peter to say, but as he which had called you is holy, so be ye holy. In all manner of conversation, in all manner of areas of your conduct, so be ye holy. And people don't even mind saying, we are supposed to be holy people. Just don't tell them what that looks like. Just don't get particular about what it means to be holy. Just don't be particular about what ought to be put out of a person's life and what to be in primarily a person's life. Oh yeah, then if you start naming, well, hold on just a second, what he told him here is, you get rid of the strange gods. Get rid of the strange stuff that doesn't belong there and go wash yourself, get clean. Uh, you've been in the world, you've touched the world, you've been affected all the way from, uh, all the way from their time in Egypt and all the way from the time that they have been, uh, Abraham came up out of Egypt. They've been affected by the pagan and by the heathen and by the idol gods of the, of the Canaanites. Apparently they've been affected by that. And they came from up in what we would know as Syria or Assyria, I should say. And that's where Haran, Padan, Aram, was pagans up there, idolaters up there. They've been affected by that. And here they are carting their way back to the gate, hold it, the gate of heaven to meet with God with junk that has no place in the life of a child of God. Amen. And Jacob says to him, put it away. You wash yourself of course, we know God really doesn't care about clothing and outward appearance, but still he said, wash your clothes, change your clothes, wash yourself and change your clothes. <laughs> You're still not liking sarcasm, so I'm trying to stay away from it. <laughs> but we know God really doesn't care about attire and things like that, but he did say change your clothes if you're gonna meet with God. He says it again when you get to the Mount Sinai under the leadership of Moses. And Moses is getting them ready to meet with God. And he told them the same thing. Wash yourself and dress up. So you can have all this casual stuff out here. That didn't come from heaven. I said that didn't come from a thirst for God. Well, I just don't like to go to church where people try to impress anybody. Are you sure you're in a position to pass judgment on why people are dressed up? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I, I don't want to go to church where people dress up and everybody thinks they're better than everybody else. So you have the gift of discerning 
the motive behind everybody that dresses up to go to the house of God? Wow. Ain't you something? <laughs> well, this is my last night. Looks like it's a good thing, too. But, <laughs> but he said, you're going to meet with God. Put away the stuff that doesn't belong there and wash yourself. Get clean. Get clean from the filth that's touched you. Get, fill, uh, get clean from the thoughts that have filled your mind and the things that you have seen. I've said this about our day and time, that children growing up now, including our son, who's now 42, in the time that he was growing up, I've said, my son will see more pornography accidentally than my dad could have found on purpose. I believe that. And look at all this stuff. Do you ever see anything that you think, where'd that come from? Come on, these devices are dangerous. These devices are dangerous. They're, they're, eat, they're eating away like rot at the soul of the men and women of this country. Yeah. So, so wash up. We need the washing of water by the Word. Yeah, that's why we got to live in the Word. We're going to walk along. We're going to do like Jesus said to the disciples. Oh, you're going to have your feet washed. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And he said, well, then if I don't wash your feet, they're not part. Well, then make me whole clean. He said, well, you've already been saved. But in the day-to-day -day walk and everything, you're going to have to have it washing now and then. You're going to have to have your feet washed. You're going to have to get clean. And you and I, as we go about our life and as we live in this culture and live in this world and live in these fallen bodies and live in a fallen uh, a race, as we go about this, when we're going to get saved, Serious about meeting with God, we better, we need to clean up. Wash our minds. Clear our thoughts. Get the images out of there that don't belong there. Get the attitudes that don't belong there. Wash. Get clean. You're going to meet with God, especially where there's corporate worship. Look like it. Look like it. Take it seriously. I'm, I'm not saying, I've never said as a pastor, I mean, Pastor uh, Ingram has been to the Bible Baptist Church, Stillwater. There were times our church was running three and four hundred, and I'd be just about the only man there that didn't have on cowboy boots. These guys wore, and they ironed their jeans. I mean, come on, you know how this is. Their jeans are all ironed. There's a crease in their jeans. Okay, and iron would be a hot piece of thing. Okay, so anyway, they'd, iron, they'd have their crease in their jeans, their boots polished and everything, and a really pressed shirt. And buddy, these cowboys were dressed up for church. <laughs> I never said, you're, you're offending God. I, 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 never, I never said that. I'm, I'm not trying to start a cult where the only way for you, you got to dress exactly like I do. Or you're not really ready to prepare to meet God. But it ought to be something more than just who cares. Amen. I think that's a good way to say it, don't you? It certainly ought to be more than, ah, just going to church. It's just Sunday night or it's just Wednesday night or it's just, just Wednesday night. Wednesday night. And it's true that so many churches have made Wednesday night a joke anyway, so. No, there's really no anticipation of meeting with God in too many places. So, let's you and you and I. I mean, I have to think about it. I'm preaching this stuff. I have to think about it. Are there things in our life, in our possession, or in our practice? Are there things that 
Somebody observing a devoted, dedicated Christian might say, well, that's strange for somebody that's following Jesus. That's a strange something to have. That's a strange something to listen to for somebody that's wanting to follow Jesus. That's a strange way to attire your body and claim to be following the Holy One. That's strange. That's very much like uh, the fashion world. Very much like uh, the nudity and stuff of Hollywood. <laughs> you know what I've learned to hate about funerals and weddings? It just seems like an occasion for many people to put on a show of the flesh. It's just, it's, it's gotten disgusting. It's gotten sad. But then I don't expect that much different from people of the world. But don't you think men and ladies of God ought to have a standard somewhat higher than that? And that if you went through your wardrobe, you'd say, that's a strange thing for a godly woman to wear. That's a strange apparel for a man uh, to wear. Well, what does it make what men wear? Same thing, it makes a difference what women's wear. Such a thing as decency and modesty. It's a virtue. Modesty is a virtue. And uh, so let's ask ourselves, we, we want God to work in our life. We want to meet with God. And so God says to Jacob, put this stuff out and wash yourself with the stuff that's got you dirty. And put on some clothes that are appropriate for what you're doing. <laughs> Pretty simple, isn't it? And this isn't the only place it's mentioned. You, you, some of you fundamental Baptists, you make, I've heard this, oh, you, you make it a big deal like it matters to God what a woman wears or what, what kind of clothes people wear. Well, does he say anything about it? Well, it, it, not everybody agrees what it says. I said, did he say anything about it? Well, yes. Well, then, it's important. God's not just trying to find ways to fill up the pages of this book. If he put it in there, it means something. So he said, you, you, uh, here's what I want you to do, Jacob, because I'm going to work in your life. And you're bowing now, and I'm going to raise you up. But in order for me to do this, when I meet with you, I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. And I want you to have your family do the same thing. And the Bible says that Jacob told them that. Now watch this. And they gave, unto, look in verse 4. And they gave unto, oh, oh, no, no, no. Look down in verse 3. Good night, you almost made me miss verse 3. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in, my, in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. You know, when I was in great distress, God was there and he answered me. Now we're going to do what he says. <laughs> okay, I'll try it again. In the day of my distress, God heard me and God answered me. When I was in distress, God answered me. Now we're going to do what he says. How simple is this? Well, the Christian life can be so complicated. You can make it that way. 
It doesn't have to be that way. Did you ever have a moment of distress? Probably at the time of your salvation, you realized your lostness. You realized I'm one heartbeat away from hell. I am one heartbeat away from an eternity in hell. And in your distress, you called on the Lord. And when you called on the Lord for salvation, did he hear you? Well, doesn't that put something in us to want to do what he said to do? You would think. And certainly in our life as believers, we all come to places in the, in the journey and come to crossroads in the issues and times of life where there's sorrow and where there's grief and where there's disappointment and where there's hurt that really does come. And in our distress, what do you do? Well, you can always pray. That's what they sang about tonight. And God cares. And you're no different than Jacob. You're as precious to him as he is. Jesus shed his blood for you. You cry in, his, in your distress and he delivered you. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Are you doing what he said to do? I could tell story right now after story after story, and it's not like I'm the only one in this place that knows it. I know many of you do. Story after story where you thought the end is there. I don't know what I'm going to do. My whole world is falling in. And pastor, can you help? Pray, talk, pray. They seek God, call out to God. God hears, God answers. Uh, Where are they? Can't find them. Boy, I sure been missing you to ask God, you know, you're on that right path. You need to keep you going. Yeah, well, I kind of just, it, it's not that I know, oh, I care. But it's just, I've got this going and that going. I do this and I do that. And I'm going here and going there. And again, God's in the back seat as they go on their way being Jacob. Yeah. Yeah, oh, there's all kinds of stories. My wife's probably thinking of some of the same ones I'm thinking about as I'm standing here talking. Did he ever hear you in your distress? Oh, he did? Did he deliver you? He did. Well, that's wonderful. You feel like doing what he says? That's all he's asking Jacob to do. That's what he's saying here. And so he says, look up here in verse 5, and they journeyed. Yeah, okay, verse 4. That's, that's where we were. And they gave unto Jacob. They did what he said. You're right. We were in distress. Laban was after us. Esau could have killed us. <laughs> we had all kinds of distress. And God heard us in the day of distress and delivered us. And Jacob said, well, then let's do the right thing. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand. And all their earrings which were in their ears. Surely there's a message there for men. But anyway, uh, and, and all the earrings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. We're going to get rid of these. He hid them, I suppose, by burial. And he put them there. And he said, we've got to get these out of the way. And then they journeyed. And when they journeyed, look what God did. God caused the terror of God to be upon the cities that were round about them so they would not pursue after Jacob. Well, look how God intervenes here. I'm just saying, watch this, please. I, I think we can see our man Jacob getting lower and lower and lower, responding to God in greater and greater ways. And now God is making his presence known and known and known. And the lower he gets, the more God raises him up. 
That's the economy of the Word of God, my friend, that when we humble ourselves and lower ourselves, God said, I'll pick you up. I'll raise you up. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. <laughs> that's God. And that's where Jacob went. And you know, if we decide to follow his life on through, you can see this. God is relentless. I don't think even the word tenacious is too strong. God is tenacious about taking his children and shaping them into the image of his son. And he does it by correction. He does it by instruction. He does it by correction, by instruction in righteousness. He does it by rebuke. He does it by reproof. All scripture is given, if I threw a fit and said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, I could get amens out of this congregation. I do believe it. But you know what he said it's profitable to do? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, fully equipped, unto every good work. I charge thee therefore before the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Definition of chasten. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. God is going to work in your life and in my life to correct, to correct, to correct, to correct. And when we get this way, he's going to bend us back this way. And when we humble ourselves before him, he wants to raise us back up. <laughs> That's God. Pastor, I remember a few years ago, and I'm done here in just a second. A few years ago, there's a song real popular, you and I imagine many of the congregation would remember. And maybe it's still sung some. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes for my will to break, Lord, that's what I'm willing to do. And it's a song a person ought, to, ought not to sing if they don't mean it. You know what I mean? Whatever it takes. But if you watch the like of Jacob, and not Jacob alone, but he's been our point man this week. If you watch the like of life of Jacob, then you can see that God was at work in his life. And whatever it took, that's what God did. Not to destroy him or ruin him, but to bring him where he's supposed to be. To bring him where he said he wanted to be. He wanted God to be his God. You want God to be your God? Then that means God is God. You're not. And to bring him where he's supposed to be. Whatever it takes. And I heard that song. And I was a little suspect. I mean, it's a good song. And it's where all of us ought to be. But I think sometimes there are songs like that. To stand up and sing it is, it could smack of, oh, boy, you really mean that? And if you do, is it the right thing to stand up and declare it like that? Whatever it takes, I, that's what I'm willing to do. Are you sure? 
you, you mean that. But when it came alive to me was this. When, when my dad got cancer and he had a surgery and a kidney removed, so forth, the prognosis was good. And then after a few months, my dad was, they discovered he had cancer spreading all over the place. And my dad had had his spiritual ups and downs. He wasn't a perfect man. It was hard for me to admit that till I was past 30 years old. But my dad was not a perfect man, but my dad was, you know, he had his ups and downs. And through some uh, experiences that he should have been spiritual enough to move on past, he got bitter about some things, about church life and things like that, and still went to church regularly. <clears throat> but my mom was so troubled because she didn't see him reading his Bible anymore. And just attitudes and things, some practices and criticism. My dad was not a joyful Christian anymore. And my mom prayed for him. And so when they found the cancer had spread, my mom and I were going to have an all-night prayer meeting at her house and pray for dad and his healing. And so we met about 10 o'clock one night and got down there on uh, the couch at my parents' home. My dad was in the hospital at that time. And so we got down there to pray and <clears throat> and we intended to pray the whole night. And uh, it was sometime shortly after midnight that I stopped and I said to my mother, who knew how to pray, I said, Mom, it's unto death. It's unto death. I don't, I don't feel anything from the Holy Spirit here except Dad's not going to pull through this. She said, I know. And so somebody says, you two shouldn't have been doubting. I, I know that's what the Pentecostals will say. But I also know my mom knows the voice of God when she hears it or the moving of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to think I did too. That's really what I wanted. And my mother said to me, Sam, my prayer has been since they found out he's got this cancer, whatever it takes, I want to see him right with God. And she said, he, he went through that surgery they gave him a good report, and it did nothing for his spiritual life. And I would rather see him die right with God than live on with the attitude that he's had. And so I'm praying whatever it takes. And we talked about that for a bit. And I said, you're not going to talk her out of that. And I said, then I'll pray with you. Well, I'll pray with you that very way. And we did. And my dad, uh, the cancer just got, you know, worse and finally it severed his spine. And here's this farmer, you know, he's only 70 years old when this happens. And he worked hard all of his life and was a, he was manly, you know, he's a masculine man and hard worker and all of this strong. And, and there he's laying there and he can't so much as turn himself over in the bed. And he got bitter there. He, he was bitter at doctors. He was bitter with uh, cancer. He was cranky and even got to where he didn't want to see me. I lived 24 miles away at Stillwater at that time. And my dad and I were very close and he didn't even want to see me. And uh, that's, a, that's how low he was and how bad he was. And my mom said, I'm still praying, whatever it takes. 
and he was getting weaker and weaker and probably was down to 105 or 10 pounds and just, it was pathetic. And my mom said, I'm still praying. And one day I went over to the house from Stillwater. I was going over twice a day at that time, 24 miles away. And I went over to the house and my mom said, uh, Sam, your dad wants to see you. I said, and she was smiling. I said, he does? She said, yes, I want you to go in. I went in his room and went in there, you know, very weak voice. I'll talk normal, but it's a very weak voice. And my dad said, hi, boy. That's what he always said to me. I said, hi, dad, come here. And he began to tell me that last night, he said I was about two o'clock or something like that in the morning. Mom thought I was asleep and she was in here checking on me and my bed sore and patting me and looking around here and doing this and that. And she said, while I watched her, he said, I don't know. I just started thanking God that he gave me such a wife. And then I start asking God to forgive me because I've been angry and I've been bitter. And he said, Sam, I'm not a bitter man today. I'm not bitter. I've got it right with God. And and I'm, I'm just telling you, I, stand, I was just amazed. The countenance on his face and the, the spirit and the smile, the prayer he and I had <laughs> together. I mean, it was just utterly amazing. And my mom said, he lived about three weeks after that. And my mom said, the last three weeks was the sweetest I ever saw your dad in all the years we were married. They were married almost 50 years. And so the sweetest three weeks I've ever seen in his life, Sam. I prayed whatever it takes and God changed his heart. Do you know that's what God means for your life? That kind of surrender? You don't know my background, you're angry. We don't know what people have done to me. You're bitter. My dad said that this, that day, I forgot to tell you this. My dad said, Sam, as a preacher, you need to tell people all bitterness is against God. He showed me, I thought I was bitter at doctors and other people. All bitterness is ultimately against God. But let me tell you this. You mean something to him. And whatever it takes, he is in pursuit of you being surrendered to him. And Jacob is just one of the stories to testify to that. Lord, I'm not able to say who ought to put this out or put this on. It's not my place. I can't look into the hearts of men and women and know what their hang-up is, why they're not totally surrendered to you, why do they insist on making everything about themselves. I don't don't know why. But I know this. You mean for us to be shaped into the image of your Son. That's what you mean. And I can look at my dad and say, all things work together for good 
to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Was it a good thing that my dad got cancer? I can't even, many of you in this room know, when you see a loved one, somebody you truly love and care for, you can't even describe your anguish and you can't even describe the, uh, describe the heaviness. But as I look from now, was it good? Well, the last three weeks of his life was the most joy in the Lord my mom ever saw him have. I, would, I am thrilled. I am thrilled to this very day that my dad died with the joy of the Lord in his heart. Yes, it's a good thing. <clears throat> now I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. And there are some people in here that know there's too much Jacob in my life. They may have tried in their own heart to explain it away, to justify certain behaviors, certain attitudes, certain appetites of the flesh and lustful desires that are contrary to you. They, they may have it all worked out in their mind, but they know you mean business. I pray they'd not try to play games with you. I pray there'd be a willing humility. You raise up those that bow down. What, what, what beautiful words. You, Lord, you raise up whoever will bow down. If there's somebody about to walk out the door with their head still in the air and their chest out, like I don't need any of this, oh, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be strong at work. Glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?